the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David's heart changes, Abigail's heart rejoices, and Nabal's heart stops. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 35. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 35. Well, David, he is reasonable in this instance. And so in verse 35, back here in 1 Samuel 25, it says, so David received of her hand that which she had brought him. This was the supplies that she had prepared and put on five donkeys and came out to meet David with them. So David received those supplies and he says to her, go up in peace to your house. In other words, peace, shalom, I want the best for you. Wholeness, completeness, soundness. And then he says, see, which means know this. I have hearkened to your voice and I have accepted your person. The phrase there, to accept a person, it means to lift up their face. What he's telling Abigail is he's saying, Abigail, go without any worries for today or the future as it concerns this conflict today. You and everyone associated with you are not those I look down on with anger anymore. You have been raised up to the same spot you had been in as if this conflict had never happened. I have accepted your person. I've lifted up your face. And so David forgives the wrong done to him and turns away from his wicked course of action. And that's what a reasonable heart does when it's confronted with wisdom. So yay, catastrophe averted, right? Yes, but Abigail still has to go home because she never told her husband what she was doing. He has no clue about this meeting. So verse 36, look at what it says here. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. Abigail has to wait to tell Nabal because he's drunk. Early in the chapter, it mentioned that Abigail didn't tell Nabal what she was going to do to stop David from destroying them. Well, now we know why. Why didn't she tell him? He wasn't in a position to have a conversation. He was having a feast like he was the king. I think it's interesting it mentions that because it's ironic to me. Remember the passage in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 5, where King Belteshazzar is throwing a feast? Remember what does Daniel tell him? Tonight's your last night to be alive, buddy. You might be throwing a big party and thinking it's a great thing. This is your last night alive. 
unbeknownst to King Belshazzar, the Persian army had diverted the Euphrates River and they were going to sneak into the city via the dry riverbed that ran right through the middle of the city. Didn't have to scale any walls, didn't have to lose any men with a siege. You're just going to get right into the city with no problem. He thought he was perfectly safe. And in the same way, unbeknownst to Nabal, an army of 400 men was coming to exterminate him and everything that was dear to him. And he's throwing a party, thinks everything's great there's a lesson there for us. We may act like kings, but we are in control of very little, right? We are in control of very little. Better to act with a little humility than like the highest authority in the land. Better to act with submission than like someone who's accountable to no one. Well, he was partying, celebrating. It was a sheep shearing. This is a common occurrence when sheep shearings occurred, and he had a lot to drink, and so he was not in a position to have a conversation. So we see here that Abigail wasn't hiding anything from Nabal because of the influence of the alcohol. He was not capable of making decisions at this point in time. She planned to tell him everything once he was sober. So verse 37, the morning comes. When it came to pass in the morning, when he's sober, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. The word there died means failed. He's not dead yet. His heart failed, and he became as a stone. He got rigid. And it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal and he died. Wow, that was interesting resolution to that conflict. Again, Abigail is not flying solo on this meeting with David to be sneaky. She's doing it because Nabal's not capable of doing it at this point in time. She lets him know what happened at the soonest point possible. And when it says here that Abigail, verse 37, in the morning told him these things. That literally means she told him everything. She left nothing out. Told him what she gave David, told him of her conversation with David, what David planned to do. This is very important to understand if you're married. I have met many Christians, and and please understand, I'm speaking to husbands and wives now. I'm not singling out one gender or one part of the marriage here. I have met many Christians who perceive their spouse as less spiritual than them, or perceive their spouse as detrimental to the family's well-being. And as such, they will arbitrarily make decisions for the family or hide information from that spouse they don't trust. That is not how marriage works. God will not bless and he will not honor that. If Abigail could be in the horrible marriage that she's in, but still involve her husband as much as was possible given his state, then so can you and I, don't you think? So can you and I. Because even if your spouse really is a fool, Abigail is an example of how to handle being married to a person who makes bad decisions. Okay? Now, here we see that Nabal, when he hears the news, his heart fails him. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us, like, if he felt overwhelmed by this information or if he got mad uh, or if some other kind of stress from this triggered a heart attack. I don't know. But whatever the initial cause that brought it on, God is the reason he doesn't recover from it. Look at verse 38. And it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. Me personally, I wonder if God allowed him to have the heart attack to get his attention and gave him 10 days to repent. That's that's me personally. I don't know. That's what I think. But at the end of those 10 days, whatever the reason was, the Lord said, you're done, buddy. You're done. And he died. He smote him so that he did not recover. He died from this heart attack. Now, while the righteous in heaven will say, just and true are your ways, O God, when he judges the wicked, there's no party in heaven because God 
does not derive joy from judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 18, 31 through 32, he pleads with Israel to repent. He says, for why will you die? Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit, the Lord tells him. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure, no joy in the death of him that dies, says the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. That's what God takes pleasure in, when people repent. He doesn't take pleasure in judging the wicked. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, by the way. God, God rejoices in justice being done, in the sense of justice is right and it needs to be done. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's no party going on. In contrast, what does the Bible say happens when one sinner repents in heaven? All the angels rejoice, right? There is a party. There is rejoicing. Which is what makes David's response here a bit bothersome. Look at verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. Praises be to the Lord that has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. We'll get to that second weird part later. Let's start with the first weird part here. David, he praises the Lord he says, praise be to the Lord. And then he, it's interesting, he gives two reasons, but then says that's not actually the reason he's praising the Lord. Two reasons. He says, number one, the Lord pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. Number two, that God kept his servant from evil. First thing here we look at, he says, praises be to the Lord, because the Lord, he says, he pleaded the cause of my reproach. To plead the cause means to be someone's defender their defense attorney in a legal, a legal dispute. So he says, God was my defense attorney when Nabal reproached me. The word there means insulting or harmful words. Nabal did falsely accuse David and his men of rebellion against Saul. David had never done that. His men had never done that. So this slander of Nabal could have incorrectly turned others against David and his men. It's good to praise God when he defends you from false accusations, right? That's a good thing. David doesn't praise the Lord for that though. He also mentions here that what else God did is he, God kept him from his servant, he's referring to himself, from great evil. Listen, if God pleaded your case when you were wrongfully accused of something, that's something to be thankful for. Praise the Lord for it. If I was about to do something wicked and God stood in my path and he turned me back in the right direction, that's another good reason to praise God. But that's not why David praises God. It says, praises be to the Lord. And then he says here, that pleaded the, he just says this is what God did, but then he says why he's praising the Lord. For, that's the because, why praises be to the Lord? Well, God did these two things, but what I'm praising him for is for, the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. While David mentions these two wonderful things God did, his praise isn't for those two things, it's reserved for something else justice. Oh, not justice in the sense of righting a wrong. Abigail had already done that, right? Abigail had already righted the wrong to David. The justice here is in the sense of giving Nabal what he deserved. 
Oh man, those words are hard for me even to say. Oh, he got what he deserved. Ooh, I just, I cringe anytime I hear somebody say that, especially if I hear a Christian say that. How can David in the same breath say that God didn't give him what he deserved, but turned him around and and going in the other direction, but then praise God for giving Nabal what he deserved? There's a contradiction there. And this is the backsliding slope that David has begun to fall down on. He's tired of being falsely accused. He's tired of being wronged. And it's going to lead David down a very dark path. Now, maybe you're thinking, but that's not fair. I mean, David did the right thing and he gets mistreated, right? No, it's not fair. You're correct. But it is the life of a believer. The life of a believer isn't always fair. One of my most challenging scriptures that I ever read when I go through the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 6. When Paul just chastises the Corinthians for taking each other to court. And he says, are you you not God's people? Do Do we not have the ability to judge these cases inside the church? Can you not bring this before your brothers and sisters and have them decide who's right and who's wrong and what needs to be done? And then he, he says this, or even better, why not just be defrauded? Why not just let the wrong happen to you and take it rather than go and bring your issue out in the open before the world? Bam, you hear that and you just go, what? But that's not fair, Lord. And it's almost like the Lord goes, Ahem. take a glance at the cross. Take a glance at the cross, son, daughter. You don't want what's fair, trust me. And I don't want what's fair. I want mercy. (laughs) I want mercy. And that is the life of a believer. To experience God's mercy and to give it to others. We read about it in our scripture reading in Micah chapter 6. He has shown the O man what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. No, it doesn't mean you seek justice upon other people. No, no, you do justly. You do the right thing. And then it says in regards to others, you love mercy. And you walk humbly with your God. I can tell you that there are many things that I'm seeing today called Christianity, seeing things that Christians do, and they could never be defined as walking humbly with your God. Now, living the kind of life we're supposed to live, the Micah 6 command from God. It may not win others to our way of thinking. It may never bring about fairness. But it does give us the opportunity to shine the light of the gospel that some might be saved. And that's what Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 3, in verses 13 through 17, when he says, listen, be ready to give a a reason for the hope that lies within you. Always be ready. We always say that part, but we forget the bottom part, which says with meekness and humility. Why? Why do we do that? Let's actually look. Let's look. We got some time. I won't spend that too much time, too much time lambasting David for his polygamous relationships. Hopefully I don't need to explain why that's wrong too much. First Peter 3 Not meekness and humility, meekness and reverence, respect. Peter asks a question in 1 Peter 3. He says, and who is he that will harm you if he be followers of that which is good? The answer is most people won't. 
If you're doing the right thing, most people aren't going to wish harm upon you. But, verse 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, what does he say? Get them back? No. He says, blessed are you. Don't be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But instead, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. How do you handle this? You got to set the Lord apart in your heart. He is different. He doesn't handle things the way I handle them. He went to the cross for me. So you set the Lord apart in your heart. And then you be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, reverence, respect. Meekness means I could blast you right now, but I'm not going to because I want to be like Jesus who went to the cross for me. Jesus, who at any moment even told Peter, he said, Peter, don't you understand? If anybody understood meekness, it was Peter. Because Peter wasn't meek. Jesus described himself. He said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And he proved it to Peter when he turned to him and he said, Peter, don't you understand? I can call an entire legion of angels to deal with all these crazy people. Don't get it. Could have come arrest the son of God, Really? I mean, you know, when they first come to arrest him, he said, who are you coming out for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. And they all fell on their face. Peter, put your sword up. I don't need any help. If I want to get this, I got this. Meekness. And Peter learned that lesson. Do it with meekness. Do it with, I could blast you right now, but that is not my Lord's heart. With respect, having a good conscience, knowing you've done the right thing, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for doing well than for evil doing. Walking humbly with our God. Well, David, unfortunately, doesn't stop with his slippery slide, just with his attitude towards Nabal. Because at some point, he also decides, you know what? I'm not only tired of being falsely accused of things. I'm tired of living like a fugitive. I'm tired of being alone. I'm getting another wife. In fact, I'm going to get a few more. Look at verse 40 here in 1 Samuel 25. It says, And David sent communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. He doesn't come personally. He just sends messengers. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, Hey, David sent us here to take you to him to wife. So pack your bags, lady. Isn't that a wonderful proposal? Will you marry me via letter? Or not even letter, someone else asking. And it doesn't sound like they got down on one knee. I don't even think they took her to dinner. You couldn't come yourself, David? Marriage is kind of important. Well, they come in a bad time. It says she arose The phrase there references the fact that she was still even in mourning. It was the norm for mourning to last about seven days, which means she was not out and about doing stuff. And yet, what an amazing woman Abigail is. She arose, bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let your handmaiden be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Let me wash your feet. They didn't treat her with any hospitality. didn't do anything special for her. I mean, David doesn't have the time to come and ask her to marry him. But she washes their feet. She serves him. And then it says that Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon a donkey with five damsels of hers that went after her. And she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. That's all we know about their relationship. Was she in a hurry because she feared David's reaction if she 
didn't say yes? Was she in a hurry because she was excited? We'll never know. Because her last recorded words in Scripture are, let me come wash your feet. Let me serve you. I can tell you this, though. She couldn't have been excited about what she found out when she got to David because apparently this isn't David's first second wife. In verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also, both of them, his wives. The phrase also took means he also had taken. In other words, David had already gotten married a second time. We don't know where David met this other woman. We don't even know when David married her. We know almost nothing about her except that David had some kids with her. But apparently David's commitment to doing the right thing despite Saul's wrong to him had already started to crack before his conflict with Nabal. Because the next verse tells us why he did this. He got news at verse 44, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Falti, the son of Laish, which was of Galum. Word comes to David that he's given his wife to some other man. And David decided, oh no, he didn't. Well, fine, I'll go find myself another wife. I'll find two. And David, of course, doesn't stop there. I have heard Bible teachers defend David's polygamy. That while this wasn't God's plan, you know, to have multiple wives, having multiple wives was allowed. To which I say, rubbish. Even if God was okay with an Israeli man having two wives, which he was not, David was not just an Israeli man. He had been anointed to be king. And God's word is more than clear about a king's marital status. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, one of the things it says that kings aren't allowed to do is multiply wives. David knew better. He knew he wasn't supposed to do this. The writer of 1 Samuel points out that David had two wives at the same time in verse 43, and he doesn't qualify it by saying, but that's okay. He points it out as a negative. Now, I will not deny that David has been through a lot more than I have. And I'll be the first person to say that I have made some of my worst decisions in the hardest moments of my life. But many of those poor decisions of mine have left scars. Scars I never needed to have. And David is going to make many good decisions during his time as a fugitive, but he's going to make a few very poor decisions. He'll make them in the name of trying to take something for himself, to find some kind of scrap of happiness in a very unhappy situation. And Jesus told us that when we seek to save our life, what happens? We lose it. David lost some things. Because David's heart wasn't completely reasonable. He lost something during these hard years. He took something for himself, but he gave up a part of himself as well. And that resulted in David becoming cold, just like Saul, when it came to the area of family. There are many good things that we will learn from David in 1 Samuel. But they do not include being a husband or a father. David was a bad husband, and he was a worst father. And there's a lesson for us in that as well. If you are being wronged or life is really hard right now, please, please, I plead with you, don't make David's mistakes. Don't trade what you can't hold on to for that which is worth so much more. Let the Lord reason with you. Let him persuade you from self-oriented paths. Let him lead you to the cross. Let him lead you to the place of self-denial and the things that last forever that come with it. Amen? 
And maybe if you're struggling with that, with either being wronged or wrongs that have been done to you in the past, I I really strongly encourage you to read an excellent book on this topic. It's called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards, and it revolutionized my life as a, a young man. It goes over the life of Saul, David, and Absalom, and it shows the danger of becoming like those who have wronged you and the blessing of obeying God in the midst of being wronged. And if there's anything that our generation desperately needs to learn is that lesson. Lord, we understand from your word that there is indeed a blessing that comes from obeying you, from denying self, even when we're wronged. And no, Lord, we, we know the blessing is not always that it's gonna work out for us. Lord, I think of so many times when you've called me to a course of action and, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna obey you. I don't think it's gonna work out. And then it, it was rough. But there was a blessing to be had in that. It wasn't necessarily that the situation worked out like I'd hoped. But there was a closeness with you. There was an eternal value, something of eternal value that would never be taken from me, Lord. So I thank you for that promise. And I pray for my dear brothers and sisters who maybe they're struggling with wrongs done to them or maybe they're being wronged right now. Lord, help them to learn this lesson, the lesson of being okay with just taking it to you saying, Jesus, this hurts. It's not right and it hurts. But like you showed me mercy and didn't give me what I deserve, or I too will show mercy and not repay evil for evil. Or teach us not to try to grab on to little bits of happiness that we might find in our own understanding in, in difficult and unhappy times. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts, knowing, Lord, that you'll lead us to that eternal reward with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.